You're listening to Grace and Fire, brought to you by Emerging Women. Today, my guest is Tara Moore. Tara is an expert on women's leadership and well-being. Her work helps women play bigger in their work and in their lives. With an MBA from Stanford University and her undergraduate degree in English literature from Yale, Tara takes a unique approach that blends inner work with practical skills training and weaves together both intellectual rigor and intuitive wisdom. She is the creator of the Global Playing Big Leadership Program for Women and the co-creator of two anthologies of contemporary women's writings, the Women's Seder Sourcebook and the Women's Passover Companion. Tara will be a featured presenter at the 2013 Emerging Women Live Conference from October 10th to the 13th in Boulder, Colorado. In today's episode, Tara and I spoke about weaving spirituality practice and business, how we keep ourselves small and the importance of playing big, how to deal with criticism when stepping out and playing big, the words pod and yira, and how they can help us understand our fear, and the value of mentorship. Here is my conversation, Playing Big, with the wonderful and talented Tara Moore. Well, Tara, welcome, and uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm so excited to have you today. I have half an hour and 45 minutes all to myself. I think I discovered you about a year ago or a year and a half ago, and I've been getting your blogs and have read your poetry. And the thing that struck me the most was here was a woman who was diving into business, clearly very, very articulate and wise in the business world, but who was overtly, and I'm saying overtly, I'm putting some emphasis on that because it's unusual, spiritual. And I'm just so excited because that's such a rare combination. And I would love to dig in a little bit more about your background and how that came to be and how you came to combine these two worlds that seemingly are very separate. Mm. So maybe we could just jump in there. Yeah, I'd love to begin there. That's certainly been a big part of my journey. I I was raised in a fairly unique way, hopefully a way that's becoming less unique. But my mom was very much a spiritual seeker and had a huge passion for psychology, and so our house was full of books from all different religious traditions, from the mystical side of all different religious traditions, and she was always busy reading them. She was up at 5 a.m. writing about spiritual topics, really just for her own journey. She raised me every morning at the breakfast table asking me, what did I dream the night before? and having me diagram my dreams out, Jungian interpretation, on on the yellow pad while I was having my oatmeal or my Cheerios or whatever it was at the time. (laughs) And truly, I can remember, 
incidents like, you know, being teased on the playground at school in kindergarten and coming home and get getting into the car when my mom came to pick me up and saying, Mom, you know, so-and-so teased me and I really hate him. And she would say, always say one of two things in that kind of scenario. She'd either say, well, what do you think is going on for that person at home that would make them tease another kid? Or she would say, well, how do you think God looks at that person? Mm. So this was the milieu I was raised in, and it was Mm. particularly remarkable because it wasn't attached to any organized religion. Mm -hmm. Um, And I grew up with this kind of access to inner life and to spiritual concepts that I think children are ready for and can understand, but Mm -hmm. we often underestimate how much and how early they can understand. Mm -hmm. So I would say that was one kind of track that I was on um, from very early in life. And yet at the same time, my parents were sort of like middle-class professional um, Jewish family who really valued education and were saying to me, you're bright and you have a lot of potential and we expect you to work hard in school and do well in school. Mm-hmm. And school was a world that felt like the opposite of all that stuff I was just talking about. Because, of course, at school, nobody was asking what God thought about any of the other kids. Nobody was thinking about what dreams meant. Um, school felt very hierarchical, like I was always aware, oh, you can get a good grade or a bad grade, and yet my mom was saying every child is divine and special, so those things were at odds. Mm -hmm. And um, in school, we would just learn about, you know, this war happened because this country disagreed with this guy, and no one was looking at the inner side of anything. Mm -hmm. So for much of my life, I would say these these two different domains felt... uh, felt very distinct and I felt often like an outsider in both. Um, In one, I felt too sensitive and too spiritual. And in one, I felt like I was sometimes saying, come on, guys, let's do a reality check or let's bring a little more intellectual rigor to this. And it's really only in my adult life that I have begun to find a way to advocate for the message that these worlds do not have to be separate and where I I can have the joy of people like you saying, hey, this is actually something special about you and wonderful that you combine these two things instead of them feeling like two different languages, you know, where I was often trying to interpret or translate, but that that was really hard. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think I put the emphasis on overt, because I was surprised to see how much you really do. That's part of your work, is you're combining both. And it seems like you have a lot of receptivity in the audience that you work with to this particular mix. Yes. And, you know, one thing I've found, and I know you have a lot of entrepreneurs listening, so this might be particularly interesting to them from the angle of entrepreneur, their, their entrepreneur hat as well, is that what we tend to think of as these different audiences, the spiritual audience, 
the secular audience, you know, the creatives, the corporate people. I even came into my business with some of that. And sometimes I would get caught up in like, well, who am I talking to? You know, am I talking to the woman who has a holistic massage therapy business or am I talking to the woman who, you know, uh, is a professor or am I talking to the woman who works in the corporation? And I had assumptions about each of those groups and kind of how, how, quote, unquote, spiritual I could get with the content. And what I have found is that those are total stereotypes. I don't, every time I talk to my customers, you know, I do a lot of just getting on the phone and doing one-on-one customer interviews on an ongoing basis because I like to stay in touch with who's really listening. And every time I do that, every time I read um, a bio of someone participating in my program, I find that there's no stereotype that they match up with. There's no demographic segment that we or psychographic segment we could even make up that they match up with. Um, hmm. That that most women are something we couldn't predict. You know, like I just just think about in the past few weeks talking to a woman who's in my playing big program who is an emergency paramedic on an ambulance in a rural area and is wanting to play bigger in sharing some of what she's learned from that. That's not someone I could ever predict that would be in my programs. Or someone who said, you know, on one of our first calls, it's my last day in the military and tomorrow I'm going to be a civilian and here's what I want to play big with as I become a civilian and that's why I'm here. All the way from, you know, that to the the life coaches and the holistic healers and the corporate people and the tech entrepreneurs and so many women, especially in our time, are embracing this hybrid where, you know, I'm a transportation engineer, but I do Native American art every weekend, and that's my passion. Or, um, you know, I'm a, a college professor and physicist, and I do angel card readings, and I'd really like to do more of that. I, I see so much of that. So I think, um, unfortunately, in the business world, in the publishing world, there's been an oversimplification of the audience that's just not true to women today. I so appreciate that. And I love how you're really taking a stand and are unapologetic in an area like business that it's can be considered risky. And I'm, I'm also curious if you've ever had people that said, well, I just want you're playing big and we're going to get into that, but I just want the business side of playing big. This other stuff makes me uncomfortable. You know, it may be that some of those people just kind of click away from my site. And right. I, I that's probably happening more than I, I don't hear about it too much. And I think people know if they come to my site that, you know, they're not going to get pure secular business tactics. Um, for me, I don't get excited about helping women develop those because I feel if we're just helping people to play more effectively within a patriarchal system, um, that's certainly not serving the mission I care about. I want women in touch with what they feel called to do um, at a soul level mm-hmm. and to help them play bigger with that. That's what's going to change the world for the better. So I feel like there's plenty of other like experts out there who just help women skill up with a very neutral point of view around whatever their skills are using there for, it's fine. But I'm coming from a different place. 
tell us more about playing big and what is the essence of the work? Yeah. Well, I'll begin by sharing just how I started to use that term, playing big, in my work. Um, I used to do a lot of one-on-one coaching with women. Now I do more large group programs. But when I was starting out and I was doing one-on-one, I was seeing a pattern again and again in the women that were showing up in my practice. I always think about one of my first clients who worked um, in the social sector and was um, pretty young, you know, early in her career and had such incredible ideas about what needed to happen in her organization and her industry. She was on top of every journal and cutting-edge kind of conversation in the field. She was constantly reading and linking and um, thinking about interesting things. And nobody in her organization knew it and nobody in her field knew it because she just couldn't act on and speak for her ideas. And I was so pained by seeing that. And then I started to see the same thing in client after client, that so many of the women I was seeing in one way or another had such brilliance to share, had something really important to share, and they didn't see themselves as ready to share it. They didn't see themselves as ready to take on a major leadership role. They didn't think they were expert enough. They were being held back by their inner critic. And of course... Part of the reason I was attracting that particular theme and noticing that theme was because I had certainly grappled with all of those issues myself and was still grappling with them. So that kind of became a a focus of my work. And then, um, as I mentioned, I love to, you know, I'm always trying to be in touch with my customers. And at a certain point, a few years ago, I was doing a, a survey of my blog readers. And in the survey, I asked, my readers, what is the biggest challenge you're facing in your life, right? Because that's such a good good market research question. You want right. to know what people are grappling with. And I listed, as a multiple choice question, I listed all the things that we typically think of as so hard in women's lives. Work-life balance, right? Not enough time. Stress. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I want. Financial constraints. Unsupportive people. All this stuff. And I kind of threw in, just on a whim... I threw in, like, I'm playing small as one of the choices. And when the responses came back, that was the most popular choice. Oh, my. Right? Wow. And I was fascinated because it was it was so stunning to me that, A, that was so widespread, but more so that people knew that, that all mm-hmm. these women were walking around with the same feeling I was having, like, I'm not even sure what I mean by that, but I know I'm playing small. Right. And so out of that, I knew that I would then uh, package the the work I had already been doing with women um, on these issues under the term playing big. And what what the work of that is, um, for me, the, the approach that I take, it begins with understanding what you feel called to do in your life right now. Because again, what we want to play big with is not our ego's ambitions or um, the world's ideas of success, but our true calling. So there's a process of 
identifying what you're called to now and uh, accepting that. And then learning a variety of new ways of being that each allow you to stop holding back your voice. So really we do a lot of work around mastering the um, our awareness of self-doubt and the inner critic and beginning to separate that mm-hmm. from um, the other voices within, connect more strongly with what I call the inner mentor, which is your older, wiser self. Um, we look at unhooking from praise and criticism, so becoming less sensitive to what other people think. And, you know, a number of other tools like that, all of which support women in playing bigger. And then there's a little bit of tactical work where I bring back kind of that that left brain side and my MBA side, where after we have that foundation of inner work, um, there's some trainings and things like negotiation and communication and pitching your work to the media. Uh, because those things are great. It's just that if they're what if they're if we only get that tactical training and we don't change the inner dynamics of our playing small, we can't even use the skills we've learned because our fears will get in the way. Right. Tell me a little bit more when you say that in the playing small it feels like shrinkage, you know? Yeah. Like we we just shrink ourselves. On your website, and I've heard you talk about this in some of your television interviews, the language that women tend to use in conversation is one of the most powerful ways that we actually keep ourselves small and keep ourselves in this sort of shrunken, held back state. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yes, and this is this is a great thing for us to talk about today because it's so tangible and so actionable. So most women have a number of unconscious speech habits, automatic things we do when we're talking that undermine what we're saying. Some examples, we tend to insert the word just a lot. Um, I just think, I just am wondering, or we insert the word actually. I actually disagree. (laughs) Both of those things shrink what we have to say, just makes it sound very little and tentative and actually makes it sound like we're surprised. Like, I actually have a point. How surprising, right? right? I actually disagree. (laughs) Right. Uh, So there are little things like that. We tend to raise our pitch at the end of a statement, which makes a statement sound Mm -hmm. like a question. So we do the, um, I'm really grateful for this opportunity, and we go up as if we were asking a question. Right. Uh, we tend to speak really quickly and not punctuate, not use short sentences and not pause. There's some theories that suggest women learn to do that because we get interrupted more than men, and so we develop a coping mechanism of piling on everything we have to say and thinking oh, if I gosh. just keep talking, I won't get cut off. Yes. Yes. I'm uh, guilty. I just heard it. Actually, I heard a new one, which I'm excited to add to the list. Yesterday, I was in a jewelry store choosing which pair of earrings to buy myself, and the saleswoman said to me, I almost think you should go with these because da-da-da-da-da-da. 
I thought, oh, that's an interesting new one. I almost right. think, right? <laughs> right? So, yeah, there are, there are a yep. number of these. And because they're habits, we usually need to work on changing one at a time mm-hmm. rather than trying to tackle them all at once to pick one to focus on for a few days and just work on that. It can also be fun to do it with a buddy where you listen for each other and, you know, hear from each other. Right. What are the, what are some of the ones that um, you may be doing without even noticing it? Well, I'll definitely be hyper vigilant from now on during this podcast to see if I'm doing any of those things. <laughs> I'm sure we've both done it already. You know, I, I, I do it even as I'm talking about it because they are so ingrained, but hopefully right. we can all learn to do it less. Yeah. And actually email is another place where I hear from a lot of women. They're like, wow, once I started deleting all that tentative stuff out of my emails, like it went, they were so much shorter and they sounded so different because we tend to do this a lot in writing too. Yeah, I noticed it in writing. I use things like jest and actually more in the emails. Email can be harsh. I feel like I go overboard to soften. And yet yes. I notice that men actually don't and they you know, they just sort of say what it is and risk the chance of seeming curt. Whereas when I'm emailing, you know, I'm doing a lot of emailing with women, with emerging women, and it's definitely more effusive. And there's a lot more of those words that soften the email. And I started getting rid of those. And I thought, oh, my, can I really send this out? And but it feels it just feels strong. It feels strong. Well, it's, It's such a good point. I'm really glad you brought up that aspect, because it's important to also have some compassion for ourselves and recognize most women are doing these things because we don't want to seem too authoritative. We want to maintain connection in the communication. We don't want to offend. And in some ways, those are all really good instincts. What's interesting is how uh, we've adopted these diminishing habits Mm -hmm. to accomplish that instead of other paths to conveying that warmth and connection. Mm-hmm. So I always advocate, you know, for women, because some, sometimes it can feel scary. Okay, I'm going to go into a meeting and I'm going to let go of all these little things I do that can kind of make people feel more comfortable. So you want to replace it with more direct um, expressions of warmth and connection. So mm-hmm. it might mean instead of being tentative when you present your idea in a meeting, take the extra three minutes to really connect with the person you're presenting to, to talk to them about their weekend, to, you know, schmooze about your weekend, to express how excited you are to share the idea. So do all that nice woman stuff through that, not through toning down how you express your ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. Starting now. <laughs> Starting today. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit more about as you're playing big. There's something in some of your writings where you talk about when you're really sort of stepping into your calling and you might be a little vulnerable because you've, you know, you're getting your sea legs on and you're just sort of being authentic and you might be feeling new about it. But in that playing big and in that vulnerability, you might be getting criticism, not so much from inner criticism, which is a different thing, which we can talk more about too, but from other people. 
or feedback from mm-hmm. the universe that what is it about stepping into playing big that might attract that? And then what do we do with it? Right. Well, one of the concepts that's been so helpful for me and that I teach is that anything, when we actually come to do or say anything really of substance, it's going to attract both praise and criticism. And that sounds like something where we kind of all go, oh, yeah, yeah, I already knew that. But I think most of us don't really know it. And part of the reason we don't really know it is because it's, it's the opposite of the training that we all got in school for 25 years. So if I were to redesign education in a way that I think would help women play bigger, one of the things I would do is make sure that as a girl was growing up, dozens and dozens of times she would turn in a paper or an assignment or, you know, do the science project, give the book report, and have a panel of teachers give her grades and have them each give their subjective assessment Mm -hmm. of what she did. Mm -hmm. Because what she would quickly learn is that sometimes there'd be a general consensus about how she did, but that a lot of the time those grades would be all over the map and there would be different opinions. Some people would have got what she was up to more Some teachers wouldn't have. Some teachers would have thought she really did a great job. Some teachers would have complained that this thing was missing. Another teacher would have complained that that thing was missing. That's how the real world is. But our conditioning in the the paradigm of school is that there's such a thing as good performance, bad performance, and that there's an authoritative opinion on how you did, and that if you got the bad grade or the criticism, um, it means you're missing something. So I think we really have a reorientation to do as we start playing bigger uh, to recognize that we're going to get both praise and criticism, particularly because um, I believe that whether a woman sets out to be a change agent or not, if she's truly playing big and sharing her voice, she's going to be shaking up the status quo because we live in a still patriarchal world. So anytime a woman really brings forward her voice, it's going to be it's going to, there's going to be some controversial things about what mm-hmm. she's saying, which mm-hmm. is why of course also so many of us are scared to really start saying what mm-hmm. we're thinking. So um that that's a big piece of it and I I recommend to women to actually do this exercise of going onto amazon.com and looking up some of your favorite authors and thinkers and read a bunch of the five-star reviews and read a bunch of the zero-star reviews Mm. to see how this plays out with some of the people that you really admire. Mm, That is a great suggestion. Yeah. It's really fun to do. Um, And then the other thing that's kind of a different side of this that we talk about a lot in Playing Big is how to interpret feedback and criticism, because we don't necessarily want to just say, okay, whatever I do, it's going to draw criticism, so I'm dismissing it. That's not always useful. Um, so we we talk about feedback as information that tells you not about you, but it tells you about the person giving the feedback. And sometimes 
that might be really important. Like if I have, you know, um, sent off a business plan to 10 potential investors and they all give me negative feedback, if I'm interpreting that as being about me and about my capability to start a business and the, the you know, how well I, I wrote a business plan, I'm probably going to get really stuck and really wounded because I'm going to put a bunch of verdicts on myself that are going to be hard to get over. But if I look at that feedback as telling me about the people giving the feedback, so if I look at that feedback as telling me about investors and what they're looking for, now I can become a little bit more emotionally neutral in actually hearing the feedback and strategic. Like, are these the investors I need to influence? If so, then yeah, I need to see what this feedback tells me about them and tailor what I'm doing accordingly. So taking the feedback and having it tell you what it says about your audience rather than using the feedback to try and gain insights about our our own selves or the value that we're offering. Yeah. And our own measuring up, our own performance, right? Right. All of that. Are we good enough? Right. 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 Okay. And what about fear? I'm kind of going down the shadow lane here with you, but... Yeah. um, These are some of the things, you know, as we're stepping out and it's a big deal to step into leadership or start a company and decide you're going to be an entrepreneur and you get criticism from other people, you know, playing big. Okay, I'm going to get criticized from other people. I'm going to be dealing with fear and (laughs) it's, uh, you have to have the stomach for it. So fear is a big one that I've been dealing with that myself as I'm sort of shifting over and um, committing to emerging women, I've been dealing with fear and found your insights very helpful. Hmm. Yeah, well, I really believe we all need a fear toolkit. Like, and, and you know, all women, of course, want to play big, but all of humanity, right? That if there's one thing we could do to create a more sane and peaceful world, it would be, for each human being to have their tools for quieting and managing fear because everything destructive and self-destructive that we do at some level comes out of fear. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of practices that can just help us moment to moment reduce fear. Some are more somatic based, you know, it can just be activating the parasympathetic nervous system through breathing exercises or different kinds of movement. Um, Some of them are more cognitive. Um, It can be as simple as giving a color to your fear and um, then picking an opposite kind of color that has a really different vibe for you and connecting into that color. So kind of tricks because ultimately fear is, uh, a physiological response, and it doesn't always need to be so hard to change that up mm-hmm. in the moment. Um, so, you know, I think everybody should have their little toolkit mm-hmm. of um, w- ways that they work with their own fear. Mm-hmm. And then um, another thing that, Chantal, I'm thinking maybe you're referring to is one of my favorite teachings um, on fear, which we shared in the 
kick-ass practices yes. um, comes from actually the Old Testament from the Hebrew Bible and an insight from um, a contemporary rabbi named Alan Liu, who fortunately is deceased, but he wrote about how in the Old Testament there are two different words for fear that are used in the Hebrew Bible. One of them, the word is pahad, and that means our overreactive and irrational fear. So what's typically today spoken about is lizard brain fear. Um, sometimes people might talk about it as our ego-based fears, right? This very overreactive, um, uh, hyper uh, catastrophizing kind of fear we're all very familiar with. But then, very interestingly, he explores a second word that's used in the Old Testament. That word is yirah. And that word is defined um, in a very, very interesting way. It's defined as the fear-like feeling that overcomes us when we're inhabiting a larger space than we're used to, or when we're suddenly in more in possession of more energy than we're used to having, mm. or third part of the definition, when we're standing on holy ground. So a very interesting trio. Uh, in a, inhabiting a larger space, and you, you can take that literally or metaphorically than we're used to, in possession of more energy than we're used to, and standing on holy ground. So when Moses is at the burning bush, this is the word that's used to describe how he's feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's a fear-like feeling. It has a quality of awe to it. It's very different, actually, than that pahad lizard brain fear. Mm. And I find that when any of us are stepping into our real voices, our true aspirations for our life, our true playing big with what we want to say and what we want to do here, we feel yura. And it can feel a bit uncomfortable because it is that tingling, um, high energy, out of our comfort zone sensation. But if we can say wait, this isn't just I'm scared. We don't have to label it I'm scared and go into that panic. We can say this is actually this sacred thing, Yira, that is happening because I'm touching my holy ground, my playing big. I'm stepping into a larger space and I'm going to savor this and make friends with it. Mm. Then we can start to live with that and welcome it in our lives in a very different way. I just love it. I Every time something like this comes up, and for those listening, if you haven't heard the kick-ass practice that Tara offers on our website, you should definitely download it because it's fabulous, especially if you're taking risk in your business. Because it, as soon as I just say the word yura, it just feels like, okay, that's really the type of fear that I'm dealing with. As long as I'm focused on playing big and really coming in from that source, the foundation and the connection from that deeper level, my inner wisdom, then the only fear that exists is Yura. Mm -hmm. And just, so I just say the word, <laughs> such a great yeah. word to say. It sounds like hurrah, you know? So I just like, yeah, well, it's I'm like Yura. And then, it, you know, <laughs> 
it's a very breathy open word, especially compared to the counterpart, pachad, which has a real harshness to it. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real exhalation kind of word, and I'm, I'm really glad that's been useful to you. It has been for me, too, and... Um, and I love the point that you're making of, yeah, when we're in tune, that is the main kind of fear we're dealing with. And isn't it interesting how, you know, it brings such a feeling of aliveness on the one hand, but also most of us, as we as we get older, we're like, we kind of want to feel alive, but we kind of just like our little numbed out comfort zone too. And sometimes we don't, yes. doesn't feel so comfortable to be in the yara a lot of the time. Right. True. It's such a great way to feel comfortable is just to know that it exists. And yeah, that was big for me because I couldn't even name it. You know, it was just if it came in forms of overwhelm or, you know, self-doubt and the inner criticism. And there's something about when you're playing big too, when you finally feel like, okay, this is my soul's calling, as you say, you don't want to let it down. You don't mm. want to let your calling down by by not living up to the expectation in a way. And for yes, me, that was the big fear. Yes. And actually, I believe one of the telltale signs of a calling is that we feel we do not have what we need to do it, resources, skills, so on. Ooh. And secondly, we do not feel we are who we need to be to do it. And typically when when we're first getting a calling, there is that kind of who me like feeling like I I'm not the one qualified for that. That must be like somebody else's job with a PhD in that specific subject and practice doing something similar three times over. Um I'm not up for that. And I believe that that feeling always comes with the beginning of a calling. It's not a reason not to do it. It's actually one more, like, ding, 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 that's your calling <laughs> indicator. So interesting. And and the cool part is that the calling is there to grow you into that person. You know, I, I don't think it's just an inner critic narrative. I think we are not who we need to be at the outset of our callings to do them. We're looking at the right. calling and we're like, but I know that would take more courage, more patience, whatever's on the list for us than I currently have. And in some sense, that's always true because the calling is there to grow you into that person and you will get there on the journey, but you'll only get there on the journey, not before you start. Yes. Another great reminder. Yeah. Last time when we were in San Francisco, we were having dinner and there was a little something that came up around mentorship. And I, mm. I don't think we ever fully fleshed it out, but your reaction was interesting. And on our Facebook page, on the Emerging Women Facebook page, there's a little discussion going on about the value of mentorship. I'm curious to see if we could have that discussion now and hear your views on whether or not you think it's necessary or beneficial to have a personal and or professional mentor in this mm -hmm. process of you know, filling into your bigness and learning to play big and, and following your soul's calling. Yeah. 
I probably you said something about it, and I rolled <laughs> rolled my eyes at the topic because I you, often do that. Yeah, it was you, you, yeah. it was juicy, and I you know, and I said we're gonna have to circle back because there were so many juicy things. But yeah, so I'm I'm circling back because I know that there's some nuggets there, and I'm just curious to hear your perspective. Yeah, well, you know, as you can imagine, in my in my travels and in my work, I'm at a lot of you know conferences and panels and all the stuff about women in leadership, women in business, uh, women in the workforce. And what I was finding again and again was that these really big, um, complex issues around women in leadership were often getting like funneled down into this conversation where somebody would just say, you know... We really need more mentors. Like, that's the problem. Women need mentors, and sometimes it would be they need women mentoring them. Sometimes it would be they need more men mentoring them. They need better mentors. Or the younger women would be saying, we need mentors. And then this thing would happen where everyone in the room would kind of be like, yeah, that's true. And and then there would be nowhere to go from there because mm. uh, the, most women find the reality is they they have a lot of trouble finding the kind of mentorship they're looking for. And they often find that senior women do not, don't have time to mentor. Or many women have experiences of real betrayal by mentors where their mentors come to feel threatened by them as they're playing bigger. Their mentors don't get what they're even doing when they start doing their most innovative, provocative stuff. And mentoring is kind of always talked about with this glow around it that I felt was missing also this whole dark side of what was actually happening in in many women's so-called mentoring relationships, which was very wounding and very unexplored um, on both sides. So I have all of, of those concerns about it, but even more so, I would say there is something in that conversation that I think is in line with a pattern of having women look outside themselves for answers and look to somebody else to tell them what the track should look like instead of developing their capacity to look inside and most of the things that I think women of our time need to do have not been done before. They're about innovating. They're about shaking up the status quo. They're about making different kinds of choices. And I don't think that mentors um, as advice givers, which is what most mentors think they're supposed to do, can help women bring forth what's really inside of them. Right. So I'm not against it. I'm just skeptical of it as a big part of the solution. And I think instead what we need is to really develop women's capacity to listen to their own voices, understand what kind of input they want to incorporate and what kind to leave aside, Um, you know, develop strong peer relationships, all of those things, instead of this kind of mentor come save me thing that we can fall into. It's almost as if the peer support, if you're working with people who are also dealing with fear and 
dealing with their inner critic and dealing from outside feedback, that they, at a peer level, would be more supportive in helping us stay on track with playing big and being innovative because we're all innovating at the same time rather than dealing with a mentor who has already done the innovation, has already accomplished, has, they're on a different part of the path and may not be as in tune with those nuances that happen earlier on as we're growing or scaling or even starting from scratch. Yeah, because to mentor well, you have to have checked all your baggage at the door. You have to know, like, if I'm someone who maybe I've already, you know, started and grown my successful business, and then so-and-so who's just starting hers is coming in. And the likelihood that she's going to try and do something that's going to trigger me or that's going to make me feel like, well, I tried that and that didn't work for me, or I need to tell her what did work for me, like all that stuff, which I would consider poor mentoring because it's not helping that woman develop her capacities. It's just um, passing on your story and mm-hmm. I say story in this sense in a, in a negative light, your story about what worked and didn't work for you. Um, you know, I think that's not good. I mean, I'm I'm not big on advice in general. So, for example, in the Playing Big program, you know, we have hundreds of women in there, and it's a supportive community. But one of our ground rules is there is no advice giving between women in the course. And one of the first things we do is, talk about what are other ways that you can give support besides giving advice. How do you celebrate someone? How do you express empathy and feel for them when they're going through something tough? And most important, how do you ask great questions that will help a woman get in touch with her answers instead of giving your opinion? And it is awesome to watch women develop those skills and see the kind of support that blossoms when we're not, like, shooting each other advice across the landscape. Yes. Yes, I love that. And it's so tempting to do, especially if you've dealt with something recently that's in that that genre. You want to just provide solutions. and Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and Parker Palmer talks beautifully about how often we give advice because it allows us to abandon people Mm. in the sense that we can kind of, even if our our intention will feel like to help to fix, but sometimes we want to help and fix because we're uncomfortable that they're uncomfortable. And we feel like, well, once we've given our suggested solution, we can go on our merry way. And so there's a way also in which it can be turning away from being with people. Right. I can relate to that being uncomfortable with someone else's uncomfortability. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we can all relate to many times when somebody spewed advice on us and we were left feeling like, why did that feel so bad? I guess that really wasn't what I wanted. And it didn't feel like I was being heard or being supported that, or that person was there for me. It felt like a bunch of stuff just came at me that wasn't really what I was looking for or didn't really resonate. Well, it's like almost trying to short circuit our inner wisdom process. Right, right. 
so yeah, so if if you know in the it's in the playing big discussion groups, a woman says something like, "I got this job offer, and here are my concerns, and I'm not sure whether to take it." You know, the easy thing for people to do is to like start having opinions. The harder thing, which women in the course learn to do, is ask great questions like, um, you know, well, what what role is your inner critic playing in this decision? What does your inner mentor say? Um, you know, if you um, if you really weren't afraid, what decision would you make? You know, great questions that are helping her access her answers. Right. Lovely. So powerful. All of these. I Thank feel you. like I feel like we're walking away from this with a well, as you say, a toolkit. Good. That's yeah. Good. I so appreciate your time today and we're Thank all you. really looking forward to having you at the main event. Me too. I can't wait. And I so appreciate what you're creating and stitching together and uh manifesting in the world so beautifully it's very exciting to watch great well thanks for sharing that with me thanks Chantal